0: Ned, it's the morning of stage two. We are standing behind a fence at Melrose Abbey. Well,
1: it's more than a fence. It's a like, cast-iron fortification, isn't it? Preventing us from entering the grounds of Melrose Abbey. But the reason we're here is because last night, just before, well, after we'd finished podding with Pete, and I was just editing, you sent me, very excitedly, you sent me a message saying, um, with a little link to the Wikipedia page of what we're looking at, saying, well, it's really close. We're going to go and have a look at it in the morning. And then you woke up this morning, eight hours later, and you're still excited.
0: I'm super excited. It was a proper um, because driving in here yesterday, it was just so beautiful. It's a bunny rabbit. Oh, look at that a bunny rabbit in the graveyard. And I'd seen a sign for another abbey and was disappointed. So I, was, I went on. Once we got back from, from dinner last night, I went on to Google Maps and was looking for the abbey we'd driven by. Couldn't. And then I saw actually we're in Melrose and it's Melrose Abbey. I was like, what's Melrose Abbey? And it turns out it was built by David the First in the 11th century, well, David, talk, David I, who'd have thunk, um, who was the son of Malcolm III, who had killed Malcolm, the, uh, Macbeth. Uh, yeah, yeah, Wait, get this, so, David I, his uh, grandfather was, let me get this right, Edward, uh, <laughs> thank God, I on, get all these things right, these data, data right? I did write it down so I wouldn't remember, yeah. By David I. Yeah. So, in he, the, 11, in the yeah, 12th, century, 12th century, century, obviously, 12th century. Yeah. He was uh, the son of Malcolm III, whose father, Malcolm II, was killed by Macbeth. Yeah. And then David the I was the son of Malcolm III, who had killed Macbeth and got the King of Scotland back. So then, but then, gets better, Malcolm III was then killed, and David I and his brothers were sent down to England. Exile in exile go on yeah I've got a question. yeah
1: does that mean Macbeth was real Macbeth was the king of Scotland I didn't, I didn't know that no I didn't know that
0: I literally I thought he was a made-up story for me, like, no he was a badass he, that's, that's what I mean he came in and he actually killed um, Malcolm II so, yeah 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 true I know so so it ends up that um, David I was very connected to all that but he was then sent down to England when his father was killed um, and again the kingship changed and he was sent down with his brother uh, his two brothers to, to England and was taken under the wing by the Normans and he was only nine years old and then what happened he became the protégé of Henry I and then he, Henry I essentially de him for want of a better term yeah. and turned him into a Norman a, a, and then he empowered him to come back up to Scotland and take it all back over. And then he came back up here and he's recognised as normanising Scotland, bringing the Catholic Church. He um, brought in burgs, He built marty- ma- encouraged the culture of marketplaces and, above all, the Catholic Church. And it was known as the Davidian Revolution.
1: What? So there's a lot of things... St- that I'm loosely sort of rattling around my brain and have been for decades sort of slotting into play. Has this got anything to do? No, it hasn't. No, I'm not even going to say that out loud on the pod. No, 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 I'm not going to say well, that. Why, because I say silly things no,
0: as well. No, no, we, no, are no, no, just, no, we are kind of just, we've no, never strayed far, quite, quite far here. No, that, was, that was really interesting. Yeah, but it's, um, it's amazing that he normalised Scotland. Yeah. And, but apparently over time, then the more time he spent here, he started to go back to his Gaelic roots. Um, but he was uh, in power for quite a long time and essentially, in many ways, built the foundation of what Scotland became. And he also brought in, this is the interesting thing, because of the Normanisation, he brought in the feudal system into Scotland, but by using and importing essentially Norman knights. So this is where the old old alliance begins, because with David I, from his Normanisation when he was in exile, he then essentially became French as well, well, Norman. And when he took back over Scotland, he brought in French knights as his feudal kind of captains, and that's how, in many ways, the old alliance began.
1: Old alliance, which reached its kind of sporting apotheosis when you were based in in France, and the the Scottish rider back then, winning the yellow jersey and all that sort of. Shall I paint an sort of auditory picture of what we're looking at? Well, it's, it's amazing. So um, Melrose itself sits in a little bowl surrounded by really quite substantial hills here in the borders. And it's a beautiful morning, unlike yesterday. You know, the sun's out and it's pleasantly warm. And um, it's really quite intact as a ruin, isn't it? It's effectively a ruin. But you can see a line of half a dozen um, arched windows where the cloisters used to be. And then the abbey building itself is, is quite intact. I mean, obviously, the, the kind of ceiling has been, you know, it's quite... Quite brutally restored at some point in the 20th century, but the walls and the flying buttresses are still there, and a huge arched window, which was obviously you know used to be chock full of the most uh, you know uh, you can you can imagine the stained glass in the windows, kind of the reds and the blues and everything, but now it's just all it does is silhouette the hillsides and the sky behind, and it's huge, um, and uh, yeah, I, mean, I suppose it's gothic. But it's also what marks it out, and, you know, me from south of the border coming up here, is the colour of the stone is completely different, isn't it? It's got that reddish stone that you see a little bit in Edinburgh as well. Again, Mm -hmm. geology straying, I don't know. We've come from Granite Aberdeen. It's not granite, is it? It's some sort of... (laughs) sandstone. But it's just incredibly beautiful. I mean, the borders are beautiful. Let's
0: remember another fact. So this was, was the burial place, the most prestigious burial place in those early centuries to... Uh, to have your final place, Robert the Bruce's heart is here.
1: Oh, he got chopped up, chopped up and like bits of him buried everywhere, is one of them, yeah? His heart is here? Hmm.
0: So anyway, so so David I became St. David, that's on May the 24th. (laughs) How
1: coincidental is that? I knew you'd like that. I didn't do, I'm not doing this just because of that. (laughs) (laughs) David King, but I tell you what, from what you told me, like, you wouldn't have wanted back in those centuries to be the king of anywhere, really, would you? And especially not uh, Northern Europe up here. Like, like, um, what do you want to be when you go out, king? Are you sure have you thought that through? Because that often doesn't end well, and don't have kids.
0: So true. Turn on you. Oh, it's vicious, especially that trail
1: from. Uh, yeah. yeah.
0: So anyway, but we're in Melrose, and on the way here, we drove by Melrose Rugby Place, Rugby Field Club.
1: I mean I've come one way or another I've come to the borders often come through here there's a beautiful bookshop in Newton St Boswell that I've done a book event at um, my my agent my literary agent lives not too far from here da, da, da. but I think the first time I ever came here was when I was producing a piece of poetry some filmed poetry for the grandstand about 20 years ago and we, they wanted us to write a me and a poet called Keith Wilson, a, a piece, a kind of celebration of rugby union, about which, like, he was a scouser and I was from London and none of them, we didn't know anything about it. But we did know that one of the characters we wanted to feature in this poem and indeed get him to read a lot of the words was the legendary commentator Bill McLaren, right? So we came up to, now, where does he live? Hoyk I think oh, he's, he's passed away now but he lived in Hoyk and he'd only recently retired when we went to film this and of course he was the voice that I grew up my dad used to watch the rugby in the Five Nations as it was when I was a kid and I do remember as a background sort of remembrance a bit like you probably have with Murray Walker and voices like oh, yeah. yeah. That of Bill McLaren's uh, uh, voice and he had this He had this amazing habit of, I think I'm right in saying, every single, the end of every single rugby match, when the final whistle happened, he would say throughout his career exactly the same thing. And the thing that he would say, and forgive the accent if you're from this area, I'm just going to go for it anyway, but he used to say, and the referee blows his whistle for the end of the match. Which is, I think, we should do. You know, like you know, and what is it? And the rider throws his arms in the air for the end of the stage. (laughs) It'd be really so good. Oh, it sounds amazing. I've got one more phrase I can say in my Bill McLaren voice. And you remember that great? I, you don't know anything about rugby, probably, do you? So there was a great when I was a kid. There was a great French team with the with the wonderfully long blonde hair of Jean Pierre um and uh, uh, players like Blank Serge Blanco. You might have heard. Oh, I know he's in so I used to know Serge Blanco. <laughs> oh, we've spoken about this seven because he's got that clothing label Eden Park or something. Uh, you, you must have. Did you get any free Eden Park? No, it wasn't really your vibe. Hey. No. <laughs> That's so funny. But anyway, so there's a line of commentary you can imagine this charismatic French team they're spinning the ball around and everything. And uh, Bill McLaren would say something like, C'est to Berbizier, berbizier, to blanco. I love Bill McLaren. He's absolutely. La- so we were filming with him in Hoik and we'd done a load of filming in his house and he'd been reading this stuff out loud. And then he said, do you want to film some local rugby being played? There's a there's a tournament down in the village square. I'll stop doing the accent now. Um, and uh, we went yeah, so we went down with him, and it, it was weather a bit like this: it was sunshine, rain, sunshine, rain. And it was quite, and we'd been filming for an hour or so, and then I suddenly noticed that standing next to me was Bill. He's a very tall man. He just prized my hand open as if he was holding my hand, and and placed inside my hand a little um, boiled sweet. In a wrapper because this area is famous for boiled sweets. And he turned to me and he went, you'll be wanting a sweetie no. <laughs> uh. To
0: the race, Ned, to the race. <laughs>
2: Off they go from the beautiful border town of Hike, 175.2 kilometres on the way to Dunns up and down Dale over Hill and into Valley through the woods and off they go and six riders establish a leads, including the Plucky brothers from North Yorkshire, the powerhouses of Harry Tanfield and Charlie Tanfield driving the breakaway on. Have they got a chance? All the while though, we Matty Taggart, the raider from Northern Ireland, is picking up points at the intermediate sprints. Heading towards the coast now, they turn in lands. There's the small matter of the three categorised climbs still to come. Wayne Side Rig, the first of them. Main of Law, the second. And then the small matter of Harden's Hill as they turn and head towards the finish line in Duns. But what's this? An attack from the slender-shouldered Raider from the Bardiani CSF team. It's Davide Gabaro who goes on the offensive. The wee lads built up a hell of an advantage here. <laughs> what's this though? It's a reaction from young Richie Potts in his t- Testimonial lap of Great Britain. The rider from Tasmania, all the way down under, is bringing the Italian back. And that's the end of the day for the We Italian. All together now, coming into Duns. And here's the big raider from Dutchland. It's Case Ball, the big powerhouse, pushing for the line alongside Great Britain's Jakey Stewart. And he pushes for the line at the end of the race. And it's victory to Case Ball.
0: That was very atmos- lost the atmospheric. atmospheric. Lost it.
1: That lost was it midway through. I was, I was teetering on the brink of my best Bill McLaren there, but it just fell apart at times. Yeah. It fell apart. Yeah. It was uh, very good. It's and it did sum fall. up the, the race today, really. Well, that was basically it, wasn't it? It was a good yeah. breakaway today, Pete, wasn't it? Powerful.
3: It no? was, yeah. It looked good for a while, and then it didn't.
0: Yeah. Quite quickly, actually. Yeah, it did fall apart when you put your team on the front. Yeah.
1: Trinity, we're right in the race today, Mm. Pete. Tell us the Trinity perspective of the day.
3: I mean, for one, as a breakaway, you can't ride that hard from kilometre zero and expect to not hemorrhage time in the last 30, 40 kilometres of a bike race. Can you, David? No, you can't. Mm. Uh, That's just just cycling. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) As for Trinity, well, it's what we talked about, was it yesterday or the day before that... We didn't just want to come here and put riders in the break because essentially you don't learn anything. Okay, you might learn in terms of how to get in a break if the race is going for, if the breakaway is going for an hour at the start. But um, when they're going easy like this, essentially then all you do is go through and off. But to give, you know, Liam Johnson is only his second race in Europe, first year under 23. He's going through and off with Amador, Alex Dowsett, and, you know, you can't replace um, what he's gained from today um, by being in a breakaway. And um, like I said, in the first couple of days, we wanted to come here and race as if we're going to win.
1: Uh, Pete, um, uh, he was the first rider who you sent forward, wasn't it, Johnston? And yeah. uh, I, I noted that he kind of like, he popped up, he'd moved up to the front, but he wasn't right on the front. He was sat on the wheel, I think, of the Israel Premier Tech. Rider at the time, but not actually working. He was just, you know, showing your jersey at the front and not quite right on the front. And that was the moment where Amador and Ineos Grenadiers decided with the gap was about, I don't know, four minutes. And that's when the Ineos Grenadiers kind of engaged, didn't they? And it was a brilliant Mm -hmm. moment where Amador, who's such a you know, you know, kind of alpha world tour racer, isn't he? Such a such an experienced rider and so strong as well in this race. He rode kind of like alongside Johnston. Liam Johnson, just just briefly, oh, and he kind, of like, he kind of flicked his head, nodded, and he said, right, here we go, now let's go. And it was like, at that moment, it was really nice to see your, your, your young rider, who, as you rightly say, is up there to be in the race and get involved and do things that he's going to have to do throughout his career. It was nice to see that little moment of kind of almost instruction from a senior pro.
3: And can you imagine what he, he will have taken from, f- from that moment out of today and how much that would have meant to him? Um, these these are guys that he's he's looked up to. You know, even when we got to remember like what we're trying to do here and what, how we're trying to work as a team and develop these riders. In terms of even riding on the front, it's something he's never done before. So in the team meeting, he was like, "What do I just go up to them and say? Oh, I'm going to ride now." And we were like, yep yeah, just go up. You know, be honest. Say, you know, what you're here to do. You know, tell me what I should be doing. Um, just just really replicate what they're doing on the front." and don't do any more because it's quite easy to go up there and think I'm riding I want to rip the legs off but that's not how you do it when you ride on the front of a peloton
0: that's a really important point Pete because I, I brought that up in a commentary is often in races of this stature where you've got a mixture of world tour teams pro continental continental national teams there is that very clear hierarchy we've talk, spoken about before and you, you fall into that that hierarchy very quickly because of status worries and because of mm-hmm. just uh, insecurity and so to have him go up there and do that and what i kind of as i saw it happen and then i saw the rest of trinity racing come up because once you've got a, a rider in that rotation with world tour teams your team has a right to be at the front because you're part of the of the chase and it was a really clever move because not only at a personal level for him to kind of understand that you can just ride up there and rotate because they're always going to welcome it because mostly world tour teams fall into that hierarchical kind of bullying because no one supports them and so it yeah. becomes this vicious circle but if you go up there now in you know, grenadiers israel premier tech will actually be no trinity they're good guys they can come and help we'll kind yeah. of look after them they'll look after us we're, we're all pros and that's a kind of it's a professional behavior so now i thought it was brilliant and i th- thought it was really good i mean I, I wish, and here's, here's, here's a double-edged sword, because Ineos Grenadiers were doing their kind of Ineos Grenadiers riding. When Glog attacked on that first one, again, he can't hold himself back. That's his, just, that's his nature, and that's fine. But that's when Ineos should have been doing the same thing. They should have gone with him rather than just keeping that yeah. monotonous pace. That was the moment to start the race and start attacking. Yeah,
3: I, and also, David, exactly what you just said there, there's so much more reasoning for just him riding on the front what that provides for the rest of the team in terms of respect from the peloton, morale within the team, the purpose within the race and the stage itself. That sets the tone for the next six days. So, you know, you might, on TV, you might just see a Trinity rider riding on the front. Why are they doing this when Ineos aren't riding yet? What have they got to gain? Well, with are absolutely huge, humongous amounts to gain in terms of every aspect of the bike race. Um, and it was just, it was a great day for the team. The lads were all on a high at the end. They're buzzing, um, They're buzzing after that. Buzzing. Tom, Tom Gloag actually had an unfortunate crash inside the last 15 kilometers. He, he's yeah. totally fine. But it was really interesting because standard was saying, get on the bumper, Tom, get on the bumper of the movie star car in front, which was Max. And actually, in the when we go around the rooms and chat to the riders and catch up, I actually, I looked at standard and said, oh my God, we used to be on his bumper. <laughs> and now we're telling our riders <laughs> to get on it i was like what yeah. you know i also
0: actually there's another thing that i said in commentary which now was coming back to me i said you gotta remember in trinity racing got two world tour riders as directors so they've got absolute yeah. confidence to do that because yeah, the directors true. in the convoy have never been world tour so they would be hesitant so to have a, a world tour director in the car that is just like no, just go and ride with them.
1: Yeah, very cool people. I know what they think. Yeah. yeah, very cool. And and from our from our perspective, it was you know I don't think I've, I don't think it's a breaking any is to say because you're our mate and you're helping us out. But you did you let you sent us a little message quite a while before mm. your team started to ride on the front, saying we're probably going to start riding after the feed zone. And literally, that's information that's incredibly useful for us because we we kind of understand and we start to interpret what might happen. We're obviously not going to say <laughs> on yeah. commentary because it would be a bit like. I've got a feeling Trinity might just be moving <laughs> up here, you know, kind of fake it. Uh, like. But it was, it was very helpful for, for us to, cause it was, so we could anticipate a little bit the presence of your riders uh, at the front. But it was really nice to feel that you guys had obviously thought that through and it was a really cogent team tactic and then the way it was executed. And also, from a commentator's perspective as well, I owe, um, I owe, <laughs> I owe Tom Clogue <laughs> a massive apology uh, for getting his name wrong. Uh, because uh, in the heat of that, there was a lot going on in today's race. Race, and I know all about Tom Glogue but I, for some reason, started calling him Matthew repeatedly today. So sorry about that. Pass. Will you pass my apologies on to him and his family?
3: I w- I will. I'm not sure he even cares. He's probably realised, but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Easy mistakes to make, Tom Matthew. Very yeah. 1990s names, actually, aren't they, David? They're great names, aren't they? Well, you guys have got yeah. quite.
1: Or you've got you've got quite straightforward names, both of you as well, Pete and David. Well, They're yeah, quite, uh, actually, disciples,
3: we're the disciples, aren't we?
0: Pete, just a tangent on this. Why do um, Isle of Man people often use full names rather than nicknames? You, I always, call, you always call me David. Mark always calls me David. Uh, I've, also, I've had this kind of thing and it's like... No, so you I are d- David though. You're not No, Dave. no but most people no. call me Dave. I call you David. Yeah, you call me David, but it's a yeah. very... Cat- uh, sorry, I was going to say Catalan, that's a Freudian slip. Yeah. Isle of Man thing where you, you really respect the full name.
3: Teacher. I used to call you Dave until I retired and we started working together in commentary. And for some reason, I started calling you David. I don't know if it was like a—that's because I don't be, know.
1: You probably know him better now, and he is a—he's a David, isn't he? He's not really a Dave. He re- Oh, he's such a David, like. <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to i could never that. call you dave again
0: i like literally i write everything i sign everything everything's david i everything's david and then everyone quickly calls me dave yeah so it's just but that's fine i i don't mind it in the slightest yeah but i have always found it quite endearing
1: you you haven't sorry peter you haven't heard this bit of the podcast mm-hmm. yet um because you haven't heard the podcast oh, <laughs> but the first 10 minutes <laughs> of the podcast um, oh, right. Before, you're yeah, oh, yeah, you're yeah. Already pre recorded, mate. Already pre recorded. <laughs> Quite early this morning, um, David and I went to see a ruined abbey in Melrose. And, I, and, it, and it was beautiful. It was a beautiful morning this morning. And um, it sort of dawned on me while we were there that the reason that he really got excited by the ruined oh, abbey was because it, it was founded by King David I of Scotland. Ah. <laughs> So go. many connections. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was great. <laughs> it was great. I knew you'd take the Mickey out of that. No, it wasn't. So I how was like ha- how was yours? I mean, Abbey that were founded by King Ned. I'd have been all over yeah. it. That's yeah, yeah. A- apart been. from. Ruined
3: Abbey's I mean how's your tour of Britain going I feel like it's been a lot of the questions have been directed at me since oh. we've been here I, I, I mean can, have you got any I can tell you insights something. into your commentary life or well I can tell you what interesting
0: happened facts interesting facts I can tell you what happened to me today oh, so yeah. oh, here we go no, no no I won't be too <laughs> long on it so Duns I'm just gonna put the microphone down <laughs> for a bit Duns yeah. is the the hometown of have you heard of a racing driver called Jim Clark he died in 1967 no 96, yeah, 1967. Anyway, he's recognised as being the greatest ever Formula One driver. He was Scottish, a sheep farmer that lived near Dunns, and there's a and even really? even Juan Manuel Fangio, who's recognised as being the Argentinian, like one of the greatest drivers of all time, referred to him as the greatest ever Formula One driver in history. Ayrton Senna considered idolised him, but <laughs> so you have to be a bit of a kind of. Motor racing buff like I am, regards not modern racing but 1950s and 60s when it was, yeah, at it's most perilous. It was the era of Fangio, Moss. Uh, you had uh, obviously Clark, Hawthorne. Uh, there mm. was this whole list of like, and a lot of them died,
3: gone. Oh, it's like, um, music, isn't it? Like, if you're, if you're into commercial music, like, you're not cool, but the ones you don't know like then you 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 really know. You know, if you know someone that someone else doesn't know, you're like, oh, you know your stuff about music. A bit like that with the f- your Scottish friend. Duns. Oh, look
1: at this. we It looks like we've got a podcast guest. So we've got yeah. a guest. Wow, well,
3: we have. Very special guest. Yeah, Pete, so do you want to you introduce your hand guest to maybe
1: hand over, hand over your entire podcasting equipment to our guest? Would that be the best thing to do here? Do you First of all, an introduction from
3: Peter. Yeah,
1: an introduction from Peter.
3: From Peter. Well, I am extremely emphatic to announce Pat McQuaid to our podcast, father of Andrew McQuaid, who owns the team that I am representing here, Trinity Racing. Um, a man of many stories, um, a living legend, and I guess I'll hand my uh, headphones and microphone over to Pat now, and you can enjoy. Yeah, Pete, you're curious. not
1: done yet, though. You'll come back, won't you, at the end? Have a little. Uh, I, yeah, I'll that. always come back. Yeah. All right, okay. Hand, hand the stuff right. over to Pat. We'll bridge the gap, the awkward That's gap, the as that equipment gets handed over and. Uh, yeah,
4: and yeah, then here's Pat. Pat the
1: microphone. You should be able to hear us.
4: Pat, can you hear hi. us? I can hear very well indeed. Pat, first of
1: all, I think I
0: I, I genuinely, now we're in this a, a few years, I would like to offer offer a formal apology for some of my behavior in the past to you. Because <laughs> I I think uh, I've uh, been... Apologiate.
4: Apology accepted. You needn't go into too much detail. No, it, but yeah, I, oh, gen- I, genuinely, I genuinely do. I think uh, you so should go
1: into a lot of detail. I'd be absolutely fascinated. I, no, no, I've,
0: I've been an annoyance. <laughs> Pat's been always a great supporter of mine, and I've been an annoyance to him in the past, and I, I genuinely do apologize for that, because in hindsight, perhaps a lot of it wasn't
4: fair. So yeah, Okay, let's yeah. forget about it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Past is the past. All right,
1: okay. I'd like to chip in straight away with happy birthday, Pat.
4: <laughs> Thank you very much. I've Happy already birthday. got one surprise today as well oh, in the brilliant. in the dining room of the hotel. Uh, Fantastic! So I've, 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 yeah, it was good.
1: What what good what, a, what a place to celebrate your birthday! And Pat, what I suppose my first question is: What on earth are you doing on this bike race? Shouldn't you be like feet up in the in the Costa Brava or something, just enjoying life rather than driving Pete Kenyuk around in a van? <laughs>
4: <laughs> um, you could say that all right, yeah. It's it's true, but when 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 cycling's in your blood you can't you can't walk away from it no matter what. And and when, when I finished with the UCI for instance, I'd arrived at the top, I finished with that. I couldn't I still couldn't walk away from the sport. Um and you know, whatever I can do, I mean I've I've started in this sport holding a red flag on a corner as a marshal, as a young kid, marshalling local races. And uh, I've done every sort of role within the sport. And I would continue to do roles. And, and uh, Andrew's got it. My son Andrew has this team. And so last year I said to him, look, um, if you need a hand with anything, you know, uh, just ask me, you know. So he said, w- would you mind driving a camper van? I says, I wouldn't mind at all. And so now I've got That's a so permanent good. job for the rest of my life driving a camper van <laughs> <laughs> around Pat. from one end of England
0: to the other. <laughs> Pat, on on this point, because it's um uh, for some of our listeners, listeners and you were the president of the UCI and and that's probably what you're most renowned for. But I think it's the story behind it because Pete. I know you've been hanging out with Peter, and he's he's talking about all the different stuff you did. Could could you give us a little bit of your life in cycling from that red flag?
4: I could have did, yeah. And I'll try and press it press a fifty years into five minutes as best I can. <laughs> but um, no, I mean I, I I come from a cycling family. My father raced before me. Um, I saw my father in the Grand Prix of Ireland when I was 11 years of age. He was, I think, 40, 41 or something like that. Um, so I have several brothers. I've come from a big family, a family of 10. And several of my brothers raced as well and rode to a good level, the Olympic Games and things like that. And uh, I had a, a good career as a cyclist. And at one point in time I decided would I look to go professional direction or would I follow an academic career and I decided to go to university instead and that those four years would have been the years I might have gone to Europe and so I went to university and started to be a physical education teacher because it had an association with cycling association with sport that type of thing I then left that and completed that and went into teaching I enjoyed it I did 10 or 11 12 years of teaching in school and really enjoyed you know working with kids From there then, uh, I got into event organisation because a colleague, you know, I I mean, my own career as a cyclist was a pretty good one as an amateur. Back in the amateur days, I won the Tour of Ireland twice. I was national champion once and then I turned pro for the Viking team for a couple of years. And the guy who was in charge of the PR for that Viking team, a guy called Alan Alan Rushton, was sort of the pioneer of a lot of high-level races in the UK he started with the Kellogg's city centre races and then the, the Kellogg's tour. And he he had these Kellogg's city centre races on and, and um, I looked at them and I said, I wonder would one of those go down in Dublin? Because at that time we had Kelly and Roach, the world's number one and started number two. And so I contacted him and he said, okay, I'll put it to Kellogg's, you know. So, um, you know, between the rigs and the geels uh, we uh, the jigs and the reels, rather. We um, we ended up putting on a Kelloggs in Dublin in 1984, and it was a huge success. Medi um, Merx was brought over as a guest, and there was uh, the, the the circle was jam packed with people. It was a live television and everything. Huge success. With that success, we went to RT, who were covering it for us, and said, "Would you be interested in doing a stage race?" So they said, uh, if you can do, produce that type of competition and that type of thing here for us, we'll certainly do it. And uh, if you think you can get the big pros over, and I spoke to Kelly Adroch, and Rocha, they said, look, we'll, we'll help it. We'll get the big teams over. And they did come over. We, we had the best teams in the world for, best riders in the world for a good while. And so we ran this event, and uh, it was a huge success. And um, we went from there into the Kellogg's Tour in the UK, Another big success as well. Similar format, five-day race on television every day, live. And uh, then we ended up broadening our perspective a little. But we ended up, for instance, organising the Tour de Langkawi for ten years. Uh, I organised the Tour de Philippines with Alan for a couple of years for in the in the nineties. And you know, from that aspect of it, uh, I I also then was working at home and got getting into coaching with the with the National Federation and looked after the Olympic team and I ran a junior tour of Ireland, which David I think you may have written. Um, um 1995, back yeah. in your junior yeah. yeah, back in your junior days, yeah. And so I was heavily involved in coaching that and that got me involved with the Federation. The Federation asked me to be national coach and then I ended up become president of the Federation. And uh, I brought the Tour de France into Ireland in ninety eight. And um the, 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 the federation, by, with the events I was organizing, the Nissan and the Kellogg's Tour and this and the other, and then the Tour of France and Ireland and President of the Federation, that got me sort of in communication regularly with the UCI, because I was going to congresses, I was going to meetings for calendar dates and all that type of thing, and through that I got approached about joining the UCI board. And in 1997, I went for it, but I didn't get it. No, in 1994, I went for it and didn't get it, but in 1997, I got on the board. And immediately, the then president gave me a role of president of the Road Commission. And that was really up my alley, because Road Commission is involved with juniors, women, and under-23s. And that was the area that I had a huge interest in. And so for eight years, I was on the board looking after the development of those three disciplines, those three aspects worldwide. And I really enjoyed it. And um, then Verbruggen announced that he was stepping down. And, uh, he, you know, he said he he, he had a meeting one night of the board one day and he said, look, I'm stepping down and. And um, you, you know that I've told, I said that the last Congress, I wouldn't be going for the next Congress and we need a replacement. And he says, I really think the replacement should come from within the board. But it's not up to me. It's up to you guys to decide that. And so I sat there looking around the table and that was probably the first time I ever had in England. Maybe there's a possibility I could become president of the UCI because it had never been intention. It wasn't something I planned for or worked for or any sort of thing. And so... I then got approached by the president of the European Confederation and he said, look, we've had a meeting in Europe and Europe would like you to go for the position and we will support you if you do. And so that's how I ended up uh, going forward and getting elected as president of the UCI.
1: Oh, Pat, it's, a, it's an amazing story how you rose to the top of the sport and obviously you were there for eight eight really kind of momentous years at a very important time. In <laughs> yeah. the, <in> the de- <laughs> Let's put it like that, yeah. the development of the sport. I just want to take you a little bit further back in the you know, you've outlined your history. You organized the Grande Part in 1998 in Dublin. Yeah. yeah, Which is, of course, you know, a hugely significant moment. And uh, I was working on a documentary with your youngest brother, Dara McQuaid, <laughs> earlier yeah. on this winter. We, w- we were shooting it, and Dara told me an amazing story about... <laughs> Just made me laugh about how Stephen Stephen Roach had been basically employed as as the ambassador for the Grand Depart in Dublin.
4: Yeah, which is a simple yeah. enough
1: job, isn't it, Pat? You've got to you've got to turn yeah, yeah. up. And, you've got to turn up and say the right things, right? Be nice. Yeah, and and yeah. sort of push the right buttons. And on the eve yeah. of the race, he gave an interview, didn't he? To uh, the the. C- d- can you pick up the story? Do you know what I'm talking about?
4: Yeah, he gave an interview to RT, I think it was, that he wasn't getting paid enough or whatever it was, something like that, you know. So uh, he, he wasn't happy with, with, with this, that, and the other. And Sean was getting, there was more, uh, you know, exposure for Sean than there was for him. And it's a little <laughs> bit like that, you know. And he was, after all, had won the Tour de France and everything. Um, and so there was a little bit of that going on in the background. And he was trying to put the screw on us for more money. And we we, <laughs> we were on a limited budget and we didn't have... We didn't, you know, we'd only so much money to spend and we didn't have money to pay for glossy extras like like ambassadors and things like that, you know. So, yeah, was basically something like that behind it.
0: Yeah. Uh, Pat, it's, what have been your, your favorite memories of the kind of your during that journey from being marshal to racer to
4: organizer uh, to president? Up as far as president, and and the president from as as uh, an just said, from was it, you know, a tumultuous eight years as president, or most of it. I, answering your question directly, the journey up there, the, the 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 thing I enjoyed most was like the event I enjoyed going to most annually, as uh, a board member and as president of the road commission was the under twenty three world championships or the under twenty three European championships. Because you get into that race, and I would be as 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 president of the commission I'd be in, or asked to, I'd go along as part of my role, and I'd be put into the main into the commissaire's car right behind the race, usually to watch to follow the race and that would that would be my choice because that's the best place to watch any race and to see those guys just race and race and race like like crazy men you know. No tactics, no strategy, no nothing, and that type of thing. And to see that going on for four hours, I, I re- it really gave me a lift. Um, and likewise, was the, 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 the Junior Tour of Ireland, for instance, that you rode, a similar scenario. You get 80 or maybe 100 under 18 guys. Their stage is only 50 mile long, and they just go from the gun. And held for leather, and there's no none of the strategy or tactics and all that involved in it. And to watch that sort of cycling, th- they were the things I I got the most enjoyment out of.
0: I'd forgotten you you'd been the director of the Junior Tour of Ireland in '95, because mm-hmm. that was my um, that was my kind of decision maker whether I went pro or not or tried to do it, because yeah. I yeah. sucked so bad at the San Marino Worlds. I'd come from Hong Kong, and there was this last chance gap. Uh, Chance last gas last gas last gas chance saloon. where yeah, yeah, I, know I got mean. with uh, um Mike Taylor getting one of the low buzz GB teams over to Junior Tour of island and we were in yeah. Derry we were in Derry and it was like the, the <laughs> evening of the or- Orange March remember that I was telling well, never remember ab- well yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah I was telling Ned about that this evening yeah that it was a uh, kind of yeah but it was I got there and I was. I got bit, and I'd done the National 25 a week before and blow my knee out because they didn't have limited yeah. gears and I'd never ridden more than kind of big gears. And, <laughs> and I got there and I had the most fun. It was the first stage race, proper stage race I'd ever done. And yeah, I yeah, had yeah, yeah. so much fun. Yeah. And, and that was when I came out of that and I was like, I really want to do this. And I came out of that and yeah. I went to my mum, but got back home to Maidenhead to my mum and said, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to defer my, my place at art college and tried to be a bike racer so yeah, thank you yeah, for organizing yeah. that it's a great pat, race and,
1: and the rest is history pat and yeah. here he is staying in Sunderland in the Holiday Inn with me yeah <laughs> this is this is <laughs> it now that's where it ended up <laughs> I know yeah I know
4: I was watching, watching you trying to look for tv pictures yesterday oh were, dear you were doing your best to, we were doing our best to, thanks, make, pat. Uh, to make the yeah. excuses yeah yeah.
1: Pat, um, I've got I've got one final question before we let you go and enjoy your birthday. Um, it's a story that I became aware of, as I say, when I was filming with Dara in the winter, but I wasn't really able to tell um, an incredible story about the 1972 Olympics and um, what happened to the Irish road race team there. There was a McQuaid yeah. in that race.
4: My brother Kieran, yeah. Your brother Kieran, yeah, he, he was in the race, a, right? Yeah. And he was in the race. a year younger than me. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, so he's a, he's a year young. You're the oldest of the brothers, aren't you?
4: Pat? I'm the eldest yeah. of the brothers. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. so just to kind of it's an incredibly complex story though. I don't want to get lost in the detail, but the story bubbled to the surface again. And honestly, this side of the Irish Sea, I don't think anyone knows anything about about this story really. It's a it's a kind of yeah, hidden story, yeah. and it's fascinating. But the yeah. lad today who was up the road for the With Sun God team, um, Matthew Teggett, yeah? yeah, picking up the intermediate sprints. He's the grandson right. of Noel Teggett,
4: right? yeah, who rode that race, no in that race, Olympics, Pat.
1: What yeah. happened in that race? Can you outline it in a couple of minutes and just explain to a kind of predominantly, I suppose, British audience what on earth that was all about?
4: Well, it, it, it's, it goes back to some extent to the, the British-Irish relationship and the relationship and the, the whole Northern Ireland situation and, and, and what have you. Um, it, at that time or prior to that time, there were two organisations in Ireland, one recognised by the UCI and one not recognised by the UCI. The UCI recognised political boundaries. In other words, it recognised that there was a political boundary between the south of Ireland and the north of Ireland. So therefore, the only way they could accept an, an, an Irish team would be that there would be representatives from the southern group and representatives from the northern group, and they select the best. The 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 other organisation in Ireland was a 32-county organisation, which was very much, by and large, a politically based organization a bit like Sinn Féin is at the moment in Ireland it's a 32 county organization and they were not accepted by the UCI because the fact that they didn't recognize the border so they didn't compete in international races they rode in races like in northern France the Grand Prix Humanity and races like that which were outside the UCI anyhow they wanted to make a protest in in Munich and they went along and you know secretly were going to join the race on the day the race was meant to happen um, because remember the the Israeli bomb the Israeli murders Absolutely. and all that happened, yeah yeah, and so the the bike race was postponed by twenty four hours because of that incident they were parked or camped somewhere not long not, not far away from the from the course, and they didn 't know um, this had gone on they didn 't know that you know they, I mean there were Irish over there, they were in Munich, but they weren 't following local news and all that because they didn 't understand german they didn 't know that the road race had been cancelled. So they sat there all day waiting for the race to come along and it never appeared. They went back to the hotel that evening and they made some inquiries and found out that it had been actually cancelled or postponed rather. So the following day they got out again five or ten kilometres up up around the circuit and when the race came along they joined in on their bikes. Unbelievable. And, and they had a different jerseys slightly different jerseys to the Irish team and they set out to to make a statement but unfortunately one part of the statement that they made which i think things got in fairness to them i think somebody got a little bit carried away and grabbed the jersey of noel taggart and pulled him off his bike and um that's what we sort of remember now most of that of that incident is that taggart actually got dragged off his bike the guys who did it now apologise for what they did. They hadn't intended doing that. They intended just to make a political protest. But in effect, there were eight instead of four Irish cyclists in the race. There were eight Irish cyclists in the race. Four of them that weren't allowed to be there at all. And so the, the police had been had to be called and the race commissaires and everything to get them to get the unofficial riders out of the race. And that's what happened. But Noel, Noel Taggart was his, his. He was really on a good day. He was flying and everything at that time and everything. And his race was completely ruined by that incident. And that's his grandson, as you said, that was racing there today.
1: Amazing story, Pat. Thanks for yeah. summarizing that. It's just fascinating. Extraordinary <laughs> bit of history. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Thank you, Pat, for joining
3: okay. us. Okay. Yeah. Good to see you. Glad yeah. to be here. Let me see you. <laughs>
4: yeah. Enjoy the rest Talk of your birthday. Talk again both, sometime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well <laughs> indeed. Right. Yeah. Okay, Thanks, Pat. You back to see you in real yeah.
1: life soon, hopefully. Cheers. So Pat's just handing the microphone back to Pete, who's been uh, patiently... Thanks, Pat. Yeah, well, that's amazing, Pete. What a scoop you got for us there.
3: Oh, he's just an absolute fountain of knowledge and history, isn't he? And he's driving the camper, and you've got these 18-year-old kids, and he's saying, come on now, get ready, we've got to go, we've got to go, you know, hurrying them up, and he's like, this one kid saying, "Um, oh, I've just got out of the shower, you know, give me a minute, and I'm thinking... You have no idea who you're talking to, do you? <laughs> you have
1: no idea. who <laughs> yeah. Pat McQuaid literally has
3: yeah. no idea. That's incredible. And it's
0: a, uh, it's kind of strange because in my kind of, and I, I genuinely forgotten that he'd been the director of the junior, junior tour of Ireland when I was there, and then, then the president's of UCI kind of, it we kind of had this parallel existence, and uh, frictitious at times. Yet, it's always been. He's always been so kind and generous to me. You, you know, know, he's a. He's a He's a lovely man, and it's, uh, so, well done Pete, must be a, it must be quite cool just hanging out with Pat McQuaid for a bit, or actually, I, actually I'll put that in perspective, it's quite cool just hanging out with any, any of that generation who's seen the ropes, who've kind of... It,
3: it, it really is, and it's a, br- it's a breath of fresh air more than anything, mm. just to hear the stories from back in the day, especially in, in the age in, in cycling we live in when it's so structured and it's, it's all numbers-based and <laughs> whatever else, it's just, it's just so refreshing to have these conversations with someone who has seen it all. And it's, you know, he's so genuine. And the underlying why, why he's here now is, is, um, is his passion for the sport. It's, it's incredible, isn't it? I mean, I guess you just that came through with what you heard just then. Yeah, but cool. there's, not, there's not many people who are as passionate Uh, about cycling as the McQuaid's even when he's driving the camper he's oh what are the Vuelta results you know what the Vuelta results did did Remco crack did how's he getting on and it's 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 always there you know it's not he's not here to do a job he's just he just loves the sport Hmm. how you doing there Pete
0: you're doing a lot of moving (laughs) around (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of like you're
1: just just constantly moving around you're just like doing logistics around the table
3: I'm just putting my laptop back on charge (laughs) Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, okay. that old chestnut. Yeah.
1: What do you do with your laptop during the day that means it's always uh, out of battery by the time you get you uh, to the pulse? Well,
3: it was on 50%, but oh. I think the... The McQuaid factor just dra- drained it. It drains a lot of uh, mm. battery, doesn't
0: it? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pete, anyway, thanks for your uh, insight in regards to yesterday and the last 30Ks
3: because yeah. it actually kind of played you out. Are you
1: enjoying this race, Pete?
3: I am. I'm intrigued. I mean, tomorrow's going to be a bit of a pure sprinter's day. I think so. Yeah, got a climb early on, but it's it's too far away from the finish. Yeah. Uh, more op- like wider roads, um, straightforward stage, and then. But I'm I'm intrigued for stage four. It's been so far. It's been quite placid, hasn't it? Yeah. No room for it. The winds played a big part in in the stages, mm. like because the main climbs today were all headwind, mm. so yeah, it shuts it down. It shuts yeah. it. It completely shuts I, it down. I so. have a
0: feeling. I mean, if if I would expect one of the World Tour teams to start going bananas soon
3: from the start I hope so yeah I hope so too which is
1: the what's the feeling which is the strongest team in this race
3: Ineos Mm. still the strongest team in terms of in terms of being able to control the race and ride on the front in terms of results probably not but you know we haven't even seen any from, from Michael Kwiatkowski yet have we no. Seen a glimpse of peacock. Um Who else have they got? Uh, well, the I most, think, you I know, the most,
1: v- the most visible rider so far has been Andre Amador, mm. and um,
3: incredible. yeah. But there's more to come. There has to be. Yeah. But it's it's one of those races, isn't it? It's a small peloton. It's what is it? 100, just over 100 guys in the peloton. Yeah. Um, small team. So long stages, the hard. There's only so much you can physically do. Yeah. To be honest. Did any of your guys of got caught,
1: get, get caught up in that crash today? Like, seemed to take out the entire Movistar team. I don't know what happened there.
3: But. I don't. It was. It was a left-hand turn, and then it, it was just as they came out left-hand turn, it started to go uphill again. Yeah. So for, fortunately for the peloton, it was it was on the uphill on and, the uphill section. So.
1: And at that point, your team, and that was a good point. We commented on it in commentary. Your team were all up the front, like literally to yeah, a exactly. man. So it was a, that was another benefit of being in the race and up the front, wasn't it? You just avoided all I mean, of yeah. that. Yeah
3: yeah where we would probably have been behind scrapping for wheels and trying to stay together so yeah another benefit of of the tactic today
1: well, this is all really easy in the podcast because trinity are doing really well so we can be really nice to him and just say really good things and like it's going to be really awkward when something bad goes wrong yeah. and we just still have to sort of go through the motions but it's going really well yeah. pete well, well done. done pete mm-hmm. yeah? Yeah. Yeah. yeah i'm pleased Water
3: with that uh,
0: other news there must we've be. got a new yeah.
1: prime minister don't know if you want to go there any thoughts don't, don't go there
3: no, uh, the video you showed me uh, uh, in the Tour de France. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. wow! Yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Said. Yeah. No,
0: there's not much more news, Pete. It's kind <laughs> no. of like we did the, the Abbey at the really beginning of the day. Really enjoyed today. went it's to the day. Jim Clark, yeah. Jim Clark Museum, then straight into commentary. Yeah, yeah. lovely place as well, wasn't it? Duns, beautiful Duns, yeah. and the borders. How the borders, the borders are, are amazing. And oh, oh, oh! By the way,
1: Pete, we met the person. Oh you did have a meeting with a person today.
0: Oh yeah. Go on. Yeah, yeah. so or are we, are we keeping uh, it. There are two two persons
1: and oh, right. um, Wow.
0: they they know what they're doing. Yeah. 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 So it's it's big time.
1: It's beyond big time. Potentially. Potentially. Yeah, yeah. potentially I think it massive. will happen yeah
0: regardless this is for our listeners yeah. this is uh
1: don't tell pat mcquaid because he'll try and muscle know. in on it well, we might need like him as a kind we of might a, need him, a free <laughs>
0: consultant <laughs> for yeah, a free th- consultant yeah, get, um but yeah. yeah we're kind of moving more towards the idea of uh gro- doing a five-year plan and Wait, there was talk
1: of a five-year plan wasn't there yeah maybe even a 10 year um,
0: and <laughs> perhaps start more with a <laughs> festival sort of idea yeah, yeah and um get your festival i like that too. festival, festival. Yep. yeah yeah. Ex- oh but i'm the, all in for that the joy the joy of cycling pete <laughs> yeah. it's like getting getting people on bikes and giving them glimpses of the shiny top of the pyramid yep i.e you I, oh god and i had this
3: weird yeah like not epiphany moment but when i was walking down the corridor to my room today and there'd been a bit of talk about the person and the meeting and i was like oh, is life gonna get more uh, can it gonna get any busier uh, I yeah. like, no, that's exactly what that's you it.
1: said we walked away from the meeting with the person going oh, I'm <laughs> a bit I, like, there's a lot going on now
3: yeah. I'm buffering it's, it's quite it's, it's quite scary isn't it yeah, yeah.
1: I, I was trying to
0: find time so we did um, I mean it's a, it's a I'm not complaining the slices I'm just saying how busy it was uh, we did Melrose, Abbey in the Morning, Jim Clark Museum I did. Then you called me back for
1: commentary. Yeah, i had been sitting there doing my notes, getting yeah, ready. And then yeah. David West, like West to go. I sent him a WhatsApp <laughs> saying, David, you might want to pop in. You know, bike race about to start. Dragged him out of the motor racing yeah. museum.
0: <laughs> and then came back there for commentary. Then I'm trying to write my daily diary at the same time, which I couldn't. Because it ended up being an, a magnum opus. Oh, it was yeah. so long.
1: And then when, when we got back to the hotel, so we had about an hour and three-quarter yeah. drive. Yeah. yeah. Got, I got my running shoes out of the car, Pete, and David said, no, actually, I left them in the car initially, mm. and David said, do you want these? And I went, nah, can't be asked And then I walked into the lobby, and I felt guilty about, and, and another member of the production team said, I might go for a run now, and this was 6.30 or something. And I went, no, wow. I'm not interested. But I ended up going for a run with a producer called Paddy, and our presenter, Matt Barbette. Oh, you'll love this. Yeah. And Matt Bobette, who's very well groomed and well turned out and he's a real Yeah, elite. I know Matt, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's quite a bit younger than me, I would suggest, and very, you know, athletic, really good bike rider. Um, beautiful. and he set off, very beautiful man, and he set off holding his iPhone with a, a big app that was displaying the pace the pace that we were running at and occasionally <laughs> he'd flash it at us <laughs> and he kind of like on the outward bound 2.5 kilometers, oh my God. he held a steady advantage over me and Paddy of about five or six metres just half-wheeling us, doing the running equivalent of half-wheeling us, right? Yeah. And then as we turned, because we only wanted to run 5K, he went, he went, he suddenly, d- trying to dictate the terms as if it was his race. He went, like, mm. as if he was like, all of a sudden, um, Fabian Cancellara, Incredible. neutralizing everything. <laughs> he went like, oh, okay, everyone just calm down. He did a little flappy arms thing, like, just like, okay. And I thought, no, I'm not having that. I'm just going ri- to run at my <laughs> tempo. And I cracked on, at the, I just kept, held my pace, went past him, and then I thought. I'm in a race now, aren't I? And I kind of held my tempo. And um, and you know that thing when you're running? Where you, well, I guess it's exactly the same if you're in a bike race. I'm not gonna look back, not gonna look back, not gonna look back. Yeah. And I'm listening instead to see what's going on behind. And I noticed that the footsteps are receding. And then I do hear some footsteps coming up alongside me. Paddy's come up alongside me. I see him in the peripheral vision. And Paddy, who's from Northern Ireland, whispers to me. He just goes, you smoked, Barbet."
3: No way, did you? S- smoked him.
1: Smoked Barbet. Smoked him. He came in like two minutes down.
3: Yeah, fact. That's b- but you're, yeah, you do a bit of running though, don't you?
1: Yeah, Pete. It wasn't an impressive time, but I smoked Barbet. I did S- smoke S- Barbet S- S- today. Getting there. I'm going to. I'm going to yes, it. A win's a win. So it was worth it. Yeah, wins a win. Absolutely. Yeah. Win. yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Have you been running, Pete? Ma- no time.
0: Huh? Every yeah. morning.
1: I see it on social.
0: No, yeah.
3: Are you still? Yeah. Doing it? Today. W- today was my first morning off because the sort. We had to be up, We had to leave at eight o'clock so uh, but the but before that, yeah, the first two ones, but I know what you mean about that competitive nature um because my mum used to do it with me all the time, she's like the most competitive woman or person Brilliant. I've ever met in my life, <laughs> and it, it it'd be for an example, we'd be on holiday we were, she used to like going on cruises, so yeah we'd go on cruises when we were younger and we'd walk up you know on a cruise you'd have those you could even take the lift and she never used to like taking lifts because she was claustrophobic yep. so we'd always take the stairs loads of stairs on a cruise ship to like the top bit where you're having food from your lower cabin because we can just barely afford to be on this posh cruise you know what i mean yeah. with no windows and it'd be like her foot would go slightly in front of mine on like the first five steps Half and step then i would you. put my front of Yeah, exactly, and then it would kind of go like this for the first two flights, and then she'd look across, and I'd be like, you're not doing this, are (laughs) you, Mum? And she'd just like... (laughs) And then she's not going. And then she'd stop picking up the pace. And by the top, we were in full race mode. To Who could get to the top first? And <laughs> oh this was God. my childhood with everything.
0: <laughs> oh, this is like, this gives hope for my children. Because Nicole's my, my wife's the most competitive oh, person in so the world. Yeah. And also Chris Boardman's mum was. You read his, his book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 This might be a common oh, theme. Yeah? It's yeah. the mum's, go. not the dad's. Yeah. 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 There we go
3: oh spat the, the new human f- philosophy theory it's <laughs> yeah. all about the mums <laughs> it's all about the
0: mums <laughs> being hyper competitive yeah. yeah there you go um, that's right. a new
3: theory we'll have to yeah. ask bocatcher what his mum <laughs> 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 <Bukacha She's laughs> she his must, mum. must well, be insane she
1: was a foreign language teacher so she probably yeah no i reckon yeah she's not oh terrible. Yeah. yeah she's probably yeah. good at badminton <laughs> and stuff yeah. Yeah. um all right okay so that's the end of our podcast right. for today yeah but that's how I'm yeah. going to sign off. It's no more complicated than that. Sometimes you can just end a podcast by simply saying,
0: "Can you just give a?" Um,
1: oh yes, 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 yes. I'll Scottish. do. Well, clo- I'll close it with a Bill McLaren-type closer, and the podcast host closes the podcast, and it's done for the day.